I want to welcome each and every one of you here to our service, and I'm certainly glad that we can have this beautiful day to worship together and to have a common love and a common hope. Um, if you are visiting with us, um, know that we are in transition to um, a new minister, and I am not the typical preacher. Um, I typically teach class, so if during this time I ask a question and I stand up here waiting for an answer, then just forgive me for, for that sort of the, the mode that I'm, I'm used to. But I do think we'll have a good, good hour of study here. I put this slide here first by way of encouragement because of just some things that I've been thinking about, and it's not necessarily connected with the lesson, but I wanted to encourage you with it. It says you're always part of something good. And I think as we realize here in this congregation, as we have uh, opportunity to um, choose a minister that can help propel us and make us even stronger in our walk with, with God, let us be reminded that we are still part of something good, even now. And that we need to continue to pray for our elders as they sift through the, the resumes and, and choose men that uh, will represent this church um, to the best and, and just have courage to take ownership. Get involved. This is our congregation, and, and I just wanted to remind you that you're always part of something good. If you would, please turn with me to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, we'll be focusing on verses 25 to 35. Don't quit. Nobody likes a quitter. The legendary coach Vince Lombardi has quoted, Winners never quit and quitters never win. I would like for you to keep that in mind as we consider the cost of discipleship. Luke chapter 14, 25 through 35. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother, and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciples. Whoever does not bear his own cross, come after me, cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down and first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes with him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? 
It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Let's look at the context of this passage so we can get a full grasp of what's happening here. Jesus is, per se, turned the corner is on his final destination. He has his eyes on Jerusalem. He knows what's going to happen in Jerusalem. He knows that this, as his final destination, will be where he will be crucified. And as many of us understand the thoughts in our minds at times of distress or times of finality are very intense. And I'm sure that Jesus himself, with the mind of mindfulness of crucifixion, was on that as he realized that he had this zealous crowd around him. This was not just a crowd of meandering people that just along the way stopped by. These are people that had followed him for days. And they were, they were excited. They were a zealous crowd. Let's be reminded that this interaction of, of Jesus with this crowd had been very... Um, giving in, in its nature. If we recall in, in, in Matthew chapter 14 and verse 14, we have here where Jesus is healing them. Matthew 14, 14. And when he went ashore, he saw a great crowd and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. In Mark chapter 5, we have the, the woman with the issue of blood that touches the garment of Jesus as he's on his way to Jairus' house to heal his daughter. And we know that, that she was healed. And we have to be reminded that this must have been a pretty awesome thing to have witnessed. That these crowds realized that Jesus was so giving that even if they with thought that he could help them, could just touch his garment, that it would happen. They also saw many signs. In John chapter 12, John chapter 12, we see that this is stated of, of what Jesus was doing amongst the crowd. John chapter 12, verses 17 through 18. John writes, The crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus, out of the tomb, and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. The reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard that he had done this sign. So miracles, healing, signs. He also had compassion. Also in the book of Matthew, chapter 9, Matthew makes this quite clear of what Jesus' mindset was. Matthew chapter 9, verses 35, starting. And Jesus went throughout all the cities and villages, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction. When he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they, had, they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Then he said to his disciples, the harvest is plentiful, but the labors are few. Therefore, pray earnestly to the Lord that the harvest 
of the harvest to send out laborers into the harvest. This was Jesus who looked upon these people and knew that they needed a Savior. He knew that they needed um, to be taken care of. So these were people that, even in Matthew chapter 15, had been there with him three days without eating. And Jesus turns to his apostles and, and says, how can we feed them? They've been with me, and we know that Jesus then fed the 4,000. That's what they had seen. But is that what Jesus truly wanted at this moment in time? When his mind was on the crucifixion and he saw these people follow him, he wanted them to know for sure what they were following. And so now with this interaction here, it's an exhortation. And Jesus looks at them as if he was looking at each and every one personally and said, which of you would consider the cost? You see, Jesus wanted the truly committed and not just the prosperity followers. He wanted people who were going to be true disciples and not just mere followers. So with that in mind, what does he want from us? If we're going to consider the cost and we're going to consider what it's going to take for us to truly be a follower of Jesus, let me remind you of what's said in Luke chapter 10. We'll be here for a moment. Luke chapter 10. And verses 25 through 27. You're going to find this a familiar passage as Jesus is being challenged here. Luke chapter 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up and put him to test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And he said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength and all your mind. And the neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, you have answered correctly. Do this and you will live. Of course, this is referencing the great command that was first mentioned in Deuteronomy chapter 6. As we realized that the, the children of Israel were being encouraged to love God with all they have. We also must realize that we have to love God with all of our heart. One author described this to be the seat and center of man's life, and it includes one's intellect, his will, and his emotions. Your loves and your treasures is how I've summed it up. Let's look over at Matthew chapter 6. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21. We're to love God with our heart. Here Matthew says, do not lay up, I'm sorry, Jesus says, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Back over in the Beatitudes, Matthew chapter 5, verse 8, it says, Blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. 
Also in Hebrews chapter 10, Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 and 23, by way of paraphrase, it says, With confidence, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. Now let's turn over to 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 3. And consider these words of Peter, starting in verse 8. 1 Peter 3, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless for you this you were called and you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue in evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and the ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. And then reading on, now he, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? <clears throat> but even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be robbed. But in your hearts, regard Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason of the hope that is in you. You see, our hearts are important. It is our will and our emotions, where our treasures are. Romans chapter 10 says, For with the heart one believes and is justified. We need to love God with all of our heart. We need to love God with all of our soul. What is your soul? I believe it is your immortal, eternal, spiritual, and moral being that naturally seeks its creator when permitted by one's free moral agency and choice. Everyone has a soul. Ecclesiastes chapter 3, verses 9 through 11, we're told here by the wise man Solomon that God has put eternity into man's heart. He gave us a part that is immortal, that will live ongoing forever. Psalm chapter 42, verses 1 and 2. Psalm 42, 1 and 2. As the deer panteth for the water, so my soul pants for you, my God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. You see, what's important here when we think about our souls is that we need to keep real things real. I think so many times we get distracted by the temporal things and we forget that we one day will have to answer for our lives and that the soul that lives eternal will have a destiny. And there's only two choices. 
So I need to realize to keep things real that I am the sinner who needs Jesus, the Savior. You know, if you recall in Luke chapter 7, Luke chapter 7, beginning in verse 36, we have the woman who was described as being a sinner that comes behind Jesus and with tears wets his feet and then takes that expensive flask and dumps it on his feet and, and anoints him. You see, she wasn't afraid of the appearance. She wasn't afraid of, well, they're going to ridicule me. She knew that her soul was important and that Jesus was the one who could save it. We need to have our soul 100% in tune with God, and we need to keep real things real. How about your mind? Your mind, your thoughts, your desires, your choices. Romans chapter 8 and verse 5, we're told, but set the mind on the spirit because that's where life and peace. But set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. You know, Romans chapter 12 and verse 2 says, be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Don't be conformed to this world, but every day have the renewal of your mind for this transformation. I like the words of Philippians. Paul writes in the book of Philippians. I'm sorry, I'm getting froggy here. Philippians chapter 2. Let's consider verses 1 through 11. So if there is any encouragement in Christ, any comfort from love, any participation in the Spirit, any affliction, any sympathy, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. Do nothing from rivalry or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Having this mind in among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, and being in the likeness of man. He then humbled himself. And we know the rest of that passage, that he obeyed and was humbled to the point of crucifixion. We need to have a mind that is focused on others but more importantly, that's focused on God first. We need to sacrifice our own desires. We need to sacrifice and make proper choices so that our minds are in tune. It's important that we have a proper heart, that we have the soul, but we have the mind. And in Philippians chapter 4, turning over a page here, I'm reminded in verses 4 through 8, of the importance of having a mind given over to Christ. It says, Rejoice in the Lord always, and again I say, Rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything with prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Let your request be known, and then the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds 
in Christ Jesus. But now listen to this. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, <clears throat> if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. We need to have a mind of Christ, and we need to have a mind that's totally for Christ. And then last, we know our heart, our soul, our mind, and our strength. You know, when I think about strength here in this context, I think about the humility of what it must have been to take up a cross. I think about what Jesus had to endure to be, have the, such weakness in order to bear our, our sins on, on the cross. If you would, please turn with me over to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Here, as Paul is as telling the Corinthians about his thorn in the flesh and how he's asked you know, God to, to remove it, and starting in verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that, I should, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. You know, as we were reading in Philippians chapter 4, if we had continued on in that chapter, we would see that Paul was describing the hardships. And in verse 13, he says, And I can do all these things through Christ who strengthens me. Not all things. He was talking about his calamities. He was talking about his hardships. He was talking about things he had to be content with. And he said, I can do all these things bearing up with Christ who strengthens me. Turn over to Isaiah chapter 40. I was going to throw in an Old Testament scripture here. Isaiah chapter 40 is a beautiful passage. We'll be considering verses 28 through 31. Isaiah 40, 28 through 31. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. You see, God needs our strength because when we're weak, 
He will be the one who makes us strong. Don't rely on yourself. Don't say, I can do it. Don't say that I'm the one that's most important. We need to humble ourselves, take up our cross, and realize that our strength then will come from God. Matthew chapter 10 is a passage that I believe Brian referenced last week. And you may notice we didn't intend on this, but there's some common themes in in our lessons that, that Brian and Charles and I have put together. But in Matthew chapter 10, it says, whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. And that's after he says you need to hate your mother and father and brothers and sisters, even yourself. For whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. We must love God first, and we must love God the most. So what's the message for us? This is a total commitment. This is not something that we can be mediocre about, that we can ride the fence on, per se, live one way while we're around our Christians and another way when we're with our, our worldly friends. No. He wants total commitment, and this must be considered. So our application... Brother Stan Crawley said, Discipleship is not about starting a race. It is about finishing it. We're undoubtedly going to have some failures. We're undoubtedly going to have some times of trial and tribulation. But with proper preparation and with fellowship with your brothers and sisters, total failure can be avoidable. We don't have to realize that we've given up the most important thing when we have support around us. So with this application in mind and why it must be considered, let's consider the warning. Why is it important that we not quit? Why is it important that we don't lose our faith? If you would, please turn over to 2 Peter chapter 2. Second Peter chapter 2, and let's consider verses 20 through 22. Peter here says, For if, after they have escaped the defilements of the world, through the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the last state has become worse for them than the first. For it would have been better for them never to have known the way of righteousness than to have knowing it turned back from the holy commandment delivered to them. What the true proverb says has happened to them. The dog returns to its own vomit and the sow pig after washing herself returns to wallow in the mire. For what does it in Mark chapter 8, it it says, Also, for what does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? You know, Madison will attest that of all the bodily fluids that this body produces, for me, vomit is the worst. It's, 
it's just so disgusting that I, I can't, you know, I have trouble dealing with it. But can you imagine loving the world versus Jesus that you would turn away from God and go back and ingest your own vomit? You know how vile is that? How bad is that? Let me ask it this way. What is the cost of becoming Christ's enemy? If we turn our backs on Christ, what is the cost of becoming Christ's enemy? We like to talk about the benefits of being in Christ, but have you ever thought that if I don't remain faithful, what it will cost me of becoming Christ's enemy? What's it profit a man if he gains his, this whole world and loses his soul? Consider with me as we bring this to a close <clears throat> a couple of passages here. First being, or both of them being here in Matthew chapter 13. Matthew chapter 13. If you want to realize what the true value of your salvation is, consider what these two examples say. Matthew chapter 13, beginning of verse 44. The kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in a field, which a man found and covered up. Then in his joy he goes and sells all that he has and buys the field. And again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls, who on finding the one pearl of great value went and sold all that he had. And he bought it. You know, that one treasure that's worth so much that you'll give it all up just to have the land that it's in so that you can have it. Give all you have to have that one pearl of great price. That's valuable. That's worthy. That's what we need to consider. <clears throat> you see, Christ, I believe, presented the worst case scenarios for us to consider because he knew that his best would abundantly cover anything that is our worst here on this earth. Christ's best will cover anything that's in our worst. If we have conflict with our brother, mother, father, if we have to give up certain friends, if we have to sacrifice certain jobs, it's all worth it. Romans chapter 8 is one of my favorite passages. And he tells us that we can become more than conquerors. I've challenged our young people a few months back to try to understand what it means to be more than a conqueror and what that truly means. I think it all comes down to this <clears throat> we need to finish. We need to be faithful unto and into death to have that crown of victory. Second Timothy chapter 4, some of the last words that Paul ever wrote. Second Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. 
I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. You see, it's pretty simple. Don't quit. Continue to grow and mature. Continue to be an asset to this congregation. Continue to realize the value of your soul. Which brings us to the invitation. We've got to consider the cost, but we have to consider our soul. I said earlier, there's only two options. It's either going to be heaven or it's going to be hell. There's not going to be any other choice. And once you take your final breath, there's not going to be any other chance to get your life and your soul right with God. Simple slide here, what must I do to be saved? You've got to hear the gospel. You've got to know the good news that as a sinner you do have salvation. You believe in that salvation through the word of God. You're willing to repent, a process of transforming your life each and every day to walk in righteousness. We must confess God, not just one time, but every day of our lives. And be baptized. <clears throat> to meet the blood of Christ. To have that continual. Covering of our sins. And then lastly. Like we talked about this morning. You've got to live godly. That's a simple plan. That you can become a Christian. That you can have the pearl of great price. Today. And you can be assured. Of your life. Eternally. But as I mentioned before, this journey is going to be challenging. We are going to possibly have difficulties and sin in our lives. The path to heaven can be hard. The devil, let me remind you, is alive, active, and he makes sin very attractive. One of my favorite stories is Luke chapter 15, the prodigal son. And as we've talked about vomit and we talked about the the pig pen and the dirtiness, I want you to consider that as he came back to his father, that his father ran, embraced, and kissed him despite his filth and his stench. And then he covered him with his best robe. You know, with a contrite and a repentant heart and love towards God, there is nothing that he will not forgive. If you've got sin as a Christian in your life and you need to repent of that, we are also willing to pray with you and allow you to, again, experience the salvation and, and hope and assurance of heaven. One of our elders is going to be here. We're going to sing a song of encouragement. I hope these words have helped us realize that we need to make good choices. And today is one of the chances we can do that. As together we stand and we sing.